Welcome back. It's been quite some time since I've done a podcast, despite my enjoying doing them. I thought I'd um, take this opportunity to have a discussion online with some of my friends who I think have something pretty important to share with you. So today I am speaking with my good friend Mike Alkin from Session Cove Partners and his lead analyst Tim Chileri. Tim is a um, physical commodities trader and the head uranium analyst at Sashim Cove. For those of you who have been following me for some time, Mike Elkin will need no introductions. And for those of you who do not know him or have not followed me, Mike is the chief investment officer and founder of Sashim Cove Partners, which is a uranium-focused hedge fund. He has an enormous amount of um, experience being previously a short seller as well as a deep value investor at a very well-known hedge fund. We speak fairly regularly, well actually very regularly offline and today I wanted to um, sort of bring to a wider investment world some of the things that are taking place in the uranium market, why they are important and really just to bring a deeper understanding behind the ecosystem and how it functions. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Chris McIntosh. And today I'm talking with my buddy Mike Alkin and his analyst, Tim Chaleri. Welcome, guys. Hey, how are you, Chris? What's going on, Mr. McIntosh? All good, all good. Escaping the flu virus. Hold up. Got my baked beans. Building a dig. I've got a dugout. Are you sick? <laughs> no, I'm staying away. I'm going to dig a hole. Stack my baked beans. Get some fresh water. Hazmat suit. And, um, and, I'm, I'm ready to go. The only thing that I need just to make sure that I can get through all of this is a little micro generator, um, nuclear generator. So can you help me on that? <laughs> yeah, sure. That's the answer. That's the answer. The Russians are building them. Um, and so are the Chinese, um, which, which is kind of interesting. In fact, that's, of course, as you know, guys, that's where the... That's all the nuclear interest, if you will, has been coming from India, China, Russia, which is a little bit interesting or just disconcerting given that it was a technology that was developed in the West and has become such a powerful narrative against it um, that it's kind of been, it feels like to me, like it's been laid to waste for a number of years. Um, and in that time frame, um, it's been moving ahead elsewhere, um, both the technology as well as just the implementation of it. And in fact, in the West, they're actually moving away or have been moving away from it. In particular, our sausage-eating friends over in Germany who completely fucked up their energy system by installing massive amounts of wind and solar, which is, as you know, intermittent and has caused all manner of problems for them, in particular, a massive increase in their energy costs. 
But what I wanted to talk about with you guys today um, isn't really the history of uranium or anything of that nature. We all, the Mike, you've done an enormous amount of work online in terms of videos and podcasts and everything else. And I think anyone who wants to understand more about the the broader picture there can simply just Google and and find out um, all about that. Um, yeah. What about we? dig into the sort of the ecosystem of the uranium market and then, and then see where that leads us. Because one of the things that I know you and I have discussed before, and you know, I've probably mentioned it, but I don't think people kind of fully understand it, is that the, the, the price of uranium, the, the relationship between the price of uranium and the buyers in the uranium market is not the same as, as it is for zinc or copper or for, or for pretty much any other commodity. Basically, there's a price insensitivity that exists um, in that space. And then let's kind of dive a bit into the work that you guys have done, which is really extensive in terms of breaking down all of those components around um, pricing and, um, and, and why I'll call it consensus estimates on uranium price are wrong. Sure. I mean, you said it, Chris. The, I mean, the uranium, it's inelastic demand, right? There's no substitute. You need uranium to be converted into enriched uranium and fabricated into fuel pellets to wind up in a nuclear reactor. Uh, there is no substitute for that. Um, so regardless of whether price, whether it drops or rises, they're going to, they've got to, they've, they've got to buy it. <clears throat> and, you know, it's the, the nature of the, of the market is one that is characterized by very long-term contracts uh, between nuclear utilities and uranium mining companies. And the, the reason for that is it provides the utilities the security of supply, because again, there is no substitute for that uranium. It provides them the security of supply, knowing that for years into the future, they will have fuel pellets in, in rods delivered to their utility front door. And so typically you see long-term contracts, which by definition, according to the industry, is a contract that's signed today, but deliveries start three years in the future. And they typically last, I mean, contracts will run seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And that's historically been how, these, how it works. And what happens, though, with those contracts, it gives the utility the security of knowing they have supply, but it also gives, when you have changes in supply and demand uh, that are natural to any business cycle, it tends to give the uranium miners a false sense of security. When prices are dropping, they, during, let's take, for example, since Fukushima in March of 2011, the price of uranium was in about 72, 73 bucks a pound. Today, the spot price sits at 25 bucks a pound. But, and, and it's been a steady decline, right? Because when Fukushima had its meltdown, uh, Japan at the time was 13% of nuclear power generation in the world. 
and it was a significant buyer of uranium. And within, you know, 18 months or so, they were all shut down, all, all 54 reactors in Japan. Um, so that took a big chunk of demand out of the market. And what you started to see was the price adjust to that, like any market would adjust. In a, in a normal market that works off of regular spot pricing, it adjusts very quickly. And what you would see in that environment is as the price starts to go below the marginal cost of production, you would tend to see supply coming offline. Now, you don't do it immediately because these are long-lived assets that cost a fortune to build and they have uh, uh, massive <clears throat> uh, depletion, uh, but you're not going to just shut them down because the price dipped below. But when the price dips below in the world of uranium, $45, $50 a pound, and it starts dipping in around those levels and then starts to drop below those levels for, for a fairly long period of time, you know, you've got to start thinking about pulling production out. Well, the uranium mining industry didn't do that. So a lot of where the price is today is self-inflicted. And the reason why is because they had the security of those long-term contracts. So as the price was dipping in the mid-teens, uh, in, in, in 14, 15, 16, as it's dropping, the utilities are saying, well, the Japanese have to come back on. Uh, the miners were saying the utility, uh, the Japanese utilities, they can't replace it. And nuclear power, it's, it's a third of their electricity generation. Just around the time LNG is really ramping up and they're adjusting to it and uh, using natural gas there. More expensive for them, but that's what they were using. And the population was freaked out still from the, uh, the fallout. I don't mean the nuclear fallout, but the perception of, of Fukushima. And so the miners kept producing, they kept exploring, they kept expanding their businesses while prices were plummeting because they had the security of that supply. And you finally got to a point where uh, <clears throat> it's a few here or there in 14, 15 dropped, but net, net, you still saw growth in production into a declining price market. And uh, as those contracts rolled off, uh, you started to see uh, a significant come-to-Jesus moment saying, wait a second, we can't sell the, at these prices. It, it just doesn't work. And when you think about – pull up a couple of charts I sent you. This might frame it for you a little bit. Uh, go to, go to uh, chart number 34. Okay. Got it. Right. You'll see that when prices were ripping in 06 and 07, the utilities, which goes to the inelasticity of demand concept, uh, it doesn't matter if prices are, are, are at, at, at lows or highs, they buy. As a matter of fact, what you can see here is as the price was ripping, th this is both real and nominal pricing. So today's dollars and, uh, uh, and the dollars back then, uh, what the actual dollars were then. So you could see it either way. Uh, but you'll see the red line, uh, they were contracting uh, 240 million pounds, 200 million, 250 million pounds, 250 again uh, back in 2010, and still uh, 100, 194 million pounds in, in, what, 13 huge amounts of, of uranium compared to, you know, today, 85 million pounds. Um, but so what you started to see was those contracts 
right? Have a finite life. And if, we, we just don't go back forever in the charts. And so as you, we do, but uh, not in this presentation. If you all those pounds that were bought in, you know, that time period of eight, nine, ten, those, those, those are, uh, you know, gone, right? Ten-year contracts, they're, go they're gone. And, you know, as you start to look at the 16, these were the deliveries. Don't try and match up the numbers because they come in in stages, and we have all that data of where, you know, what, how they get staged in, right? That's, that's, so don't look at one chart and try and look at the other, but this is how it stages in. And what you notice is that you see a significant fall off here, like 2021, your deliveries into utilities fall off a cliff. Those are global utilities, right? And so um, they were, even if, if we went back to 416, they were higher, and then those contracts run down. But, but the miners were still producing and still producing into an oversupplied market. So they really kind of shot themselves in the foot until you got to around 2017 and they said, uh-oh, we can see what our deliveries are. We know what they are. And uh, that doesn't look like a pretty picture. So we need to pull out supply out of the market. And it's, 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 that's where you've been the last couple of years where you've had utilities significantly drawing down. And Tim and I talk about this a lot. It's it's the restocking and destocking concept. And Tim, why don't you pick that up and talk about that? Yeah. So, in any commodity, you really need to understand the coverage levels of the end users. Um, when the end users, the consumers of a commodity, have lots of inventory, they don't need to be doing a lot of buying. Uh, they're typically in destocking mode where they're going through their inventories. They're not coming to the market very much. Uh, so there's no need for them to be there because they're stocked up. But when we, and, and as we've, we've seen this in the Iranian market, this destocking continuing to go on because the utilities have overbought their needs in the 2007 to 2012 period. That was their, their last restocking period where they built up uh, their purchases and had those deliveries flow in over the ensuing years. Uh, and we're now in that key inflection point where a lot of these contracts are rolling off. They've been destocking their inventories. We've seen de de inventories dropping amongst utilities and others in the sector. And now we're at a point where they've got to say, okay, where am I going to get my fuel in the future for the coming decade, for the middle 2020s, the late 2020s, that time period. So they're now going back and having discussions and figuring out how am I going to do this? And we're going to restock our inventories again, where we buy a lot at once. And then they flow in again over the future years and in into the middle 2020s, late 2020s. So no conversation about commodities can be had without understanding the role of the end users and how they procure. And are they just buying similar amounts all the time? Are they do, are they restocking inventories? Are they destocking? That's a core 
function of commodity markets that you need to understand as it gives you an idea of what future demand will be in any given market. And Tim, if you're talking about the restocking and destocking, what sort of timeframes, how long will a, a uranium buyer, a fuel buyer stock for? Do they stock like, um, because I think there's the, the disconnect here. If you com- if I'm comparing this to a typical commodity market, then um, everybody sure. is much more familiar. What you, what we're really dealing with is the fact that spot doesn't matter, right? Um, because there isn't a spot in the same way because you're not buy like you don't buy something um, today with any sort of liquidity to sell it tomorrow. Um, and there's nobody else. There's, there's also um, the number of participants in the market are all playing the, pretty much the same game um, where financial markets have come over the years is that, you know, financial players have come in and they've often created, I guess, a smoothing process in that, and that they'll come and they'll speculate and, you know, like futures buyers and sellers and everything else where you have a spot market, but the uranium market doesn't have a spot market. So it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about this for a minute because it touches on a couple different key subjects that we hear a lot about from investors and people in the market who are trying to learn about it. And I think as Mike and, and you had touched on Chris at the very opening of the segment about uranium is much more of an industry or an ecosystem in my, in my lens of the world than a pure commodity because it doesn't have the girth of speculators. It doesn't have the girth of people to come in and say, you know what? Yeah, this market's out of line. We think it's mispriced. Let's go stock up on a bunch of uranium and put it in our backyard. That that doesn't happen. Similarly, in the derivatives markets and the futures markets, for example, I actually took a look before I got on here today. From the current front month contract in February 2020 through September of 2021, uh, CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, is showing about 1,800 contracts of open interest, meaning that they're is 1,800 contracts that people have gotten on both sides of bought and sold that are out there. That total amount is about 450,000 pounds of uranium. Today, 450,000 pounds of uranium will be consumed and burned around the world in 24 hours. So there's no liquidity. There's no girth for speculators to come in, and there's no avenue except for buying physical, and that's unique and hard for people to do. There's carrying costs. They might not want to literally go and sit on uranium and get involved, so they just kind of stay out of the market. So there's no real avenue or way for speculators to come in and knock kind of the market back to where it otherwise might should be versus other commodities where you see billions of dollars in notional value of futures contracts and options contracts in various commodities around the world trading, where speculators do have that ability to provide liquidity and say, this market's mispriced, I'm going to do something about it. It just doesn't really exist in uranium. It's a very unique, small market. Similarly, with utilities and utility decision-making, they are very, very deliberate. And one of the key things that Mike and I talk about internally a lot is that if people are coming to this market to speculate or to invest in equities or uh, ETFs or whatever it might be in this space, if you don't understand that utilities and this market and ecosystem is very, very slow moving, very deliberate, you're simply going to be disappointed at the speed at which things happen. And let me, instead of just being abstract about that, let me just provide an example 
for how long the, the timelines can be in this sector. When Kazanaprom in December of 2017 came out to the market and said, we were gonna, we're gonna do a 10% cut to production, a real 10% cut to production. Everyone in the industry couldn't have cared less. Utilities said, yeah, whatever. It's the Kazakhs. We don't believe them. Who knows what they're gonna do? It took from the time they announced that to late Q1, early Q2 of 2019 to really report in their following year's annuals to say, yep, it was actually a real 7% cut that happened. The industry said, so what? Kazakhs are producing. It doesn't matter. The narrative is that there's all this inventory. It doesn't matter. We, we beg to differ, of course. Then it took another year for the Kazakhs to come out and say, you know what? We're going to flex down production again through not only through 2020, but through 2021. So from start to the time that they've come out to announce their flex down productions for 2021, that's about two years, over two years. So if you're in a market trading or investing and, and it takes two years or two and a half years for the market to even recognize that the world's largest producer has made cuts, you need to align your time horizons with the speed at which the sector actually moves because it's very different than other commodities. So when it comes add, to, yeah. go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, no, go ahead. I was going to say, and then add the trade policy overhang of the Section 232 the last 18, 24 months with the nuclear fuel group. It it it, it just uh, highlights how much you know. There's all this uncertainty that adds to that normal slow-moving uh, creature Tim's talking about. Right, and, and so. When the utilities are saying, because Chris, you had asked and to answer the question, you know, how long are they buying for? There's so many factors that utilities need to look at when they're making their procurement decisions. They need to look at their internal uh, risk controls and say, how much from a certain geography are we sourcing from? How much from a certain company or producer are we sourcing from? Do we have the ESG concerns that have become very, very important recently in the world? What's our contract exposure? Are, are these fixed prices we're doing? Is it market-related prices that we're doing? And then you have to go to the utilities who are all different from each other and do scenario analysis. You know, their chief nuclear officer is going to ask the, the fuel procurement uh, ladies or gentlemen that are working in those roles, what happens if we lose 20% of our fleet in the next five years? What happens if our fleet gets license extensions for another 10 or 20 years? What if natural gas prices go to $1.50? What if natural gas prices go to $8? What if there's carbon pricing introduced in, say, the United States or in other Western countries? There's so many levels of detail that they have to go through. So when they decide to finally pull the trigger on saying we're ready to restock, they have to take all those things into an account. They need to then go into the market, discuss it. And some of these discussions can take 6, 12, 18 months with producers. So, yeah, again, very slow moving. I mean, that some of these contracts can be three months, many can be six, nine months, others can be 18 months to two years. You're talking about significant amounts of pounds, and, and yet people stare at a spot price. I just sent you a, a deck a chart, Chris, um, that shows long-term contracting as a percentage of demand, right? And, and you could put it in when you get it. Um, you know, back in, in 2004, before prices went bananas, it was 50%, and it was like 38 and 35% before then, 40%. <clears throat> 2005, 137%, 121, 135. 
7881, 145, 118. And then for the last several years, it's been between 44 and 47 percent. And that's destocking. That's that, and that's that's buying less uranium. Uh, that's contracting for less uranium for future deliveries, and so they're sucking down these inventories. And uh, you know, and I think people expect that these that this, like Tim said it beautifully, this it's 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 not a market. It's an ecosystem, and it's an ecosystem that has many layers to it. And staring at a spot price, you know, Tim, why don't you talk about spot pricing <laughs> and and what that it really is. And and just, and why it's not a gauge for where this market is. Just just well, um, before we get to that, one I just want to clear up something and clarify something for my own um, wee little thing out. So clearly, the, as you mentioned, Tim, there are a number of factors which are considered by uranium buyers and and the utilities themselves when determining what that um, what they're going to contract at, and what what their procurement is going to be. Within that spectrum, though, on the other hand, if I think about this like very simplistically, let's just say for shits and giggles, I'm a farmer and I'm trying to understand um, feed I need to be buying in for cattle, right? And there's a number of different feeds that I can use. And there's one that I always utilize. It might be corn kernels or something like that, but it's, it's maybe makes up 4% of my of my supply that I buy in for the winter. Now, mm-hmm. in that environment, I'm not typically that concerned, or I wouldn't be that concerned with that four percent, especially if it's something that has to be bought. Like if it's, if if for um, maybe that's a bad an analogy is the corn kernels, but just let's say it's like magnesium or something like that that I need for. So, the pricing of that, of course, I'm pr- pretty insensitive to. On the other hand. What that means, because I'm a, a, I'm insensitive to the pricing. B, um, I don't really care about the spot in the same way as I, because I'm insensitive to the pricing. That spot doesn't matter to me so much. I, I, my, the only time it's going to matter to me is if I, if I can't get actual supply, because I, I'd be quite willing to pay two, three, four times the price. Again, it's just it's a small com, small composition of my overall opex for. Um, for, for my business. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like you go to the shop and peanut butter, you know, is a buck a jar and then you come back and it's like four bucks a jar and you're like, oh, whatever, you know, it's like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but it's not going to really change your purchasing habits um, that much because you maybe spend a thousand bucks every time you go to the, um, you know, you do your monthly shop for your, your food. And the fact that the peanut butter is four bucks, not three, or sorry, not one, isn't really going to change, wouldn't change my purchasing habits all that much. Is that sure? Is there a feedback loop there with respect to the fact that the insensitivity to the pricing also means that there um, that there isn't a a need almost for the futures markets to actually solve that as a problem? Like you mentioned, going on the CME, and there's just there's no liquidity there, um, and there's there's no participants now. A, there's one other thing that comes into this. When you have much less liquidity, you have much higher volatility. That's, you know, anyone in financial markets understands that component. So, so we've got a market which which clearly can be incredibly volatile. And you just go back and you look at any charts on on these markets. They they can be incredibly boring for very long periods of time and then be incredibly not boring 
for, for periods of time um, and then go back to being very boring again. And what I'm trying to understand is just this, this ecosystem that you're talking about, um, it sounds to me like that's the, the, the way that that ecosystem functions is actually um, is why it delivers that sort of volatility. You know, you're talking about these, um, these, these participants in this market who really don't, they, A, they're not price sensitive in the same way that they would be in a spot market for zinc or copper or anything else of that nature. Um, but they also have this time horizon that is, that is much, much different to those other markets. Um, is that kind of the right way to think about this as a, as a market distinctly different to that of any other commodity market? Because I think that's a big, like, I think that's where so many people have gotten the uranium market um, wrong and, and will continue to do so when they think about it just as a commodity and they go, oh, yeah, well, here's, you know, um, here's zinc, here's copper, here's lithium. Oh, and there's uranium, you know. And almost like if you were to chart all the stuff together, um, it's 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 very easy to uh, to make extrapolations and correlations, which just have no fucking bearing whatsoever on on the reality underlying reality of the of the uranium market. Yeah, sure. I, th I think maybe it's it's important to recognize that you know. At first off, you know, fuel buyers and, and utility buyers, they're, they're not speculators in the market. So I think that confuses a lot of people <laughs> at the beginning, because in most markets, um, when you see prices go low, you see demand go higher. So a lot of people will say, well, why aren't they buying more if prices are going lower? So that's, that's one of the first, and part of that goes back to what Mike talked about in terms of their long-term nature uh, of buying. It's kind of like you and I, going and buying two months worth of food, you know, and loading up for food at the house, you know, you might only come to the market, you know, every 10 days to go buy some fruits and vegetables that are perishable or something. You know, you're not going to go and constantly be stocking up every single week if you just bought two months worth of food. And so during that time, when they know that their, their fuel supply is contracted for, yeah, they may check and understand what's going on in the market. They may nibble a little bit here, whether it's 100,000 pounds in the spot market or it's a small carry trade here or there. Uh, but they're running their plants. You know, 80 to 90% of their time is spent uh, running the actual plant, talking with their team, um, understanding the maintenance schedules coming, getting the most efficiency out of it. In fact, in the United States, for example, they've produced more nuclear power in 2018 in terms of uh, terawatt hours than ever before in human, in not human history, but in the U.S. history, even though they've had less uh, technical gigawatt capacity because the efficiencies have gone up. So they're doing other things than just staring at a screen, whether it's the spot market or the long-term market. It's a small component of their job. So I think that's an important thing to, to realize uh, in the uranium market. And, and further, uranium is just the ultimate feedstock. <clears throat> At the end of the day, they're really worried about getting fuel pellets. They're worried about the enriched uranium product. So the vast majority of investors who are looking at this market are looking at it from the end and looking at uranium, U308, the yellow cake, whereas fuel buyers are really looking at it the, at the other end of the, at the fuel cycle, at the other end of the supply chain. They're looking at EUP and fuel fabrication and then working their way backwards because 
Yellow cake is the ultimate feedstock. So they've got to worry about yellow cake. They have to worry about conversion. They have to worry about enrichment. They have to worry about fuel fabrication. So there's a lot of layers that go into it, and they're not just looking at the actual yellow cake portion of it. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Mike? No, I think the fuel, that, that's right, Tim. And, and the fuel cycle, Chris, is not a overnight cycle. It's, you know, it's 18, 24 months from the time you need that. And there's a lot of moving parts. And I also think, you know, when, uh, when Tim and I, four years ago now, were looking at this, starting to get our head around this, the, the nuances of the industry, uh, you know, we saw a lot of bull cases as though the bull case was Japan's got to come back online. That was the bull case. And uh, it was also, it also coincided with the expiration of something that was a significant amount of supply into the market, which was the megatons to megawatts program, where the, the Russians were down blending nuclear warheads and shipping low, uh, taking high enriched uranium into low enriched uranium and sending it into the market over 20 million pounds a year. And that was going away from 93 to 13. It expired in 13, and the market said, hey, look at this. Japan will come back online, and that goes away, and great. What the market and the miners, and we don't know how, is they missed competition that was sitting there staring them right in the face, and that was at the enrichment plant. You know, Tim just mentioned the fuel cycle. It's, it's really important to understand. It, it comes out of the ground. You, you turn into a yellow cake. Yellow cake gets sent to uh, yellow cake sits in a drum. It gets sent to a converter to convert it to UF6, which is natural uh, uh, a gas. It gets sent to an enrichment plant to enrich it to levels either for nuclear power or for uh, uh, weaponry, and then from there it gets sent to a fabricator. Well, at the enrichment plant, there was a technological shift that took place a couple of decades ago, a few decades ago. In the, in the way they enrich them, they went from a gaseous diffusion technology to a centrifuge technology. And that, that little shift there, that, that technological shift, reduced the electricity cost to operate one of these plants by well over 90%. And they're highly automated. And without getting into the details of it, but with the, with the boring nature of, of the physics part of it, essentially when an enricher has excess capacity, they can produce enriched uranium product on their own uh, and don't need as much yellow cake. Uh, and and they, could, they could generate it themselves. And so the, they were sending this excess capacity. Once those centrifuges are spinning, they keep them spinning. They don't shut them down. And so once they're spinning and they have this excess capacity, they were able to extract more uranium than what was than what an order might call for. And that was a technological shift. As long as they're running, let's do it. And they changed the levels of which they're adding um, uh, natural uranium and, and UF6, and voila. Now you have what essentially was the world's biggest mine at the enrichment plant selling it into the end market. And... So people, when people are jumping up and down in 13 and 14 and 15, saying end of megatons to megawatts, the Japanese are coming online. Well, here, come a here came a torrent of supply. And, you know, that is just really now, over, well, about last year, that, that it's called underfeeding. That's shrunk a lot, and it continues to shrink. Because as, as the enrichment plants, again, without the physics discussion, 
as they do more of that, that capacity gets sucked up a, a great deal. And to where now, it's not an overhang in the market. But, you know, when, when the utilities, uh, so, you know, you've seen different stages. Uh, conversion, for instance, Converdine, the U.S. converter, shut down their plant. So it's been Katie bar the door for fuel buyers to worry about going to secure conversion, right? Well, they're less focused on, on the U, well, they were less focused on the U308. So it's not just, it's not like a, a buyer of a commodity saying, okay, let's just go hit it in the spot market. It's going to get delivered. As there, there's a big ecosystem that has many moving parts. But the reality is, Chris, as Tim and I view it, the horse has left the barn because because of these production cuts, because of this uh, of this underfeeding that has receded, because the long-term contracting as a percentage of demand has imploded over the last five, six years, those are all inventories being sucked down and drawn down and drawn down to the point now where you are sitting in the big westerns uh, in, the, in, in Europe and the U.S., those total commercial inventories, which is inventory sitting at the utilities plus the suppliers' inventories, because fuel buyers don't only look at what they have on their balance sheet in terms of inventory, they look at what the suppliers, and that helps form their decision. You know, back in the last turn, utilities had less inventory, but the suppliers had much more. And a fuel buyer knows that. And today, the utilities inventories are down to around normal levels, but suppliers' inventories have been devastated because they're not producing as much. And there's two important points to that, and it relates to your original question that you'd asked me, Chris, uh, as we got started on here. Um, for, for certain utilities, uh, particularly in unregulated markets in the United States, inventory drawdowns represent uh, a cost savings for them because they're producing electricity, receiving money for that electricity, but not replenishing their inventory. So anyone who's worked in corporate America, anyone who's worked uh, or you know corporate anywhere in the world for that matter, knows that typically CFOs are running the companies out there today. And I can tell you that every company is trying to bring their costs down in any way, shape or form. They are trying to lower their working capital requirements. And so what someone asked me recently a week or two ago, they said, well, what, you know, if prices are low at 25 today and producers need, you know, at least a four handle to sign a long-term contract, why aren't they just going out and buying spot and then just hanging on to it? Well, the problem with that is there's lots of hidden storage costs, number one, but the cost of capital restraints varies by utility by utility, and they can't just tie up tens of millions of dollars to buy yellow cake and sit on it when they might not burn it for four or five years down the road. Their CFO would laugh them out of the room because they would never be allowed to do something like that. So there's not that type of arbitrage. So once again, and it's something that you hear over and over again in the uranium market, and we're not saying this just to say this, that it's opaque and it's complicated. It really truly is. Even the industry veterans we talk to who have been in the business for 30, 40 years, we, we kind of chuckle and say something new has come up in the market. And it's like, yep, there's always something new. There's always something to learn every single day in this market. And that's just the way it is. One of the things that I've just, I was just thinking as you're talking about that is where you've got utility buyers that are, the, the, that's 
that comment you just made, Tim, with respect to going into the spot market, buying something and sitting on it, it logically makes some sense that you would do that. On the other hand, one of the things that you mentioned earlier becomes more prevalent. And that, that mention was the fact that you don't really know whether there's going to be um, some sort of tax on carbon emissions or whether there's going to be a, uh, um, the, the you know, the anti-nuclear squad are going to come in, um, what the geography or the geographical um, makeup of the supply looks like. And, you know, there's just so many different factors. What really, if we're going to encompass that in one word, it's uncertainty. And when you're in an uncertain world, you drive to short term. It's, it's the same reason why you wouldn't buy a long-term bond. You'll go to short, tre- you'll buy treasuries, right? Uncertainty, you buy treasuries. Fuck it. You're not going to buy the 30-year, Right. And so in the same instance with the uranium market, what you're going to do if you're um, a purchaser of it is you're going to go to the shorter term. And really the shorter term just means that you're not going to, you're not going to go into the market and buy that for five years and sit in it because that's a long-term view that you just, you you a probably know you're going to get your ass kicked out by shareholders um, and you just don't know what that market is going to look like in five years' time. Maybe you're in Germany. Like, if you'd made that decision, let's just say for, for argument's sake, 10 years ago, and you were a utility buyer that was focused on Germany, what would that look like today? You would look like an idiot. But not, yeah. And not because of, you know, um, factors that were sort of within your control. Right. And I think it's it's important to say that, you know, what's going on today with the kind of in in the commodity world, you hear hand to mouth, you know, the end users are hand to mouth, meaning that they're just buying a little bit at a time to satiate them for for small amounts of time. And that's what's going on today. This is a temporary phenomenon because the the utilities ultimately need to sign structural long term contracts again. And they can't do that with with carry traders because they don't want to take the counterparty risk. We didn't even talk about counterparty risk, but they need to make sure that the person that they're signing a contract with to be delivered in seven years from now is still going to be in business, <laughs> that they're still going to be there. I mean, people forget in the mid-90s when there was a, the big blow-up in 95, I believe, New Exo, one of the trading firms, what, you know, phenomenally successful trading firm that got caught short because of uh, Russian inflows and anti-dumping cases, suddenly they got cut off from Russian supplies and they blew up. These utilities remember those sorts of things. So there's, once again, different lenses of the world that you've got to take a look at. And further, this is just a temporary situation. They can draw down inventories, but they can't do it forever. <laughs> Literally, right? But a couple of things there, Chris, too, and in that short-term spot market, you know, when you look at 80, 85, 90 million pounds, you got to remember... 65, 70% of that is intermediaries. They're traders just trading back and forth, right? The utilities are taking in, you know, uh, 15 million pounds, 20 million pounds. Last year, I think physical delivery of, of, of uranium was around 10 million pounds. And again, context, 200 million pound, round up a little bit, 200 million pound demand market. Uh, if you had 60 million pounds trade in the spot market, you're, you're, you're talking... 10 million pounds physically delivered. So even they aren't doing it. You've had, with low interest rates over, over the, you know, since, since the financial crisis, you've seen carry traders come in. So a, a, a trader, a finan- and there's only you know, less than 10 of them, 
uh, that trade these things um, will come in and, and they'll they'll go out buy some pounds tell the utility and they had been doing it it was very smart of utilities and it was a way for traders to make a little bit of money hey prices are going down it's 2014 15 16 17 they're going down don't go lock in a long-term contract let's see where it settles out and we'll we'll do a one to two year deal with you uh, and they charge them a carry fee Right, so so they use their balance sheet. They charge them a carry fee. The utility doesn't have to tie up the capital, and they don't have to enter into long-term cap and long-term contracts. Let's see where it bottoms out, and that worked. But that's not a big portion; it's a small portion of the market. It allows, but when you have excess inventory, you're just kind of topping up. You're topping up. You're topping up, but that excess inventory is gone. These drawdowns, those charts we were showing, those sucking downs, those deliveries that are coming down, that game's over. I mean, do, are there carry trades? Yes. But if you're a utility and you're, it's more so, you know, the U.S. utilities are more risk tolerant than the European utilities, uh, for instance, and, and the East is different. But, but they'll draw those inventories down to where the cupboard's almost dry. And that's where it gets very dangerous. And, and, you know, so what we haven't talked about is what you don't see happening in this marketplace are these discussions that, have led to pounds being signed at higher prices with four handles on them. Some of the big producers today, Chris, would be delighted to take market risked pricing contracts. Hey, utility, Spots 25 today will deliver to you in three years. Let's let it rip. We'll, we'll sign today, and we don't know where the price is going to be. Want to make a bet? And they, they're afraid to do it. And, and how do you know that? Because we talk to people in the industry all day long. So, um, they, 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 they are the pipeline of conversations on off-market discussions with utilities out there is, it, is significant. And you are seeing, you did see pounds signed in the, in the first quarter. And Cameco wasn't signing pounds with less than a four handle on that. It, yet spot, the term price shows at 32 bucks. Well, why is that? Well, the term price shows at 32 because of a flawed pricing methodology that really is unique to uranium and of all the commodities. It's based on a best offer. So a utility goes to a handful of people and says, we're not putting a bid out, but let's discuss pricing. And the way, the, and the way it works is the utility and the, and the, and the, and the uh, people in the negotiations aren't obligated to, but typically we'll report that negotiation back and forth to the price reporter. Well, a deal gets signed at, let's say, 45 bucks a pound, uh, but somebody came in and bid at $32 a pound, and the deal was closed at 45 You don't see the 45 What gets reported that month is a $32 price. Why? Well, because that was the best offer on it. Think about what that enables. It's such a distorted, to do. but Mike, that's such well, an Chris, incredibly it, distorted way to represent a market. It's, Show me one other Chris, market in the world which prices based on a bid or an offer because the bid offer like if your spreads wide who gives a shit i can i went to an auction a, a couple of months ago bid started on we were looking at some properties bids, bids started in like a million or something and then and then the thing got passed in at a million one and the final sale price on this thing after those negotiations done was it like a couple of months later was like a million five forty so like what's the you're looking at well, uh, well, the a price massive price variance. Tell you, 
the price report, yes, Chris, the price reporter will tell you, well, a rational buyer would have paid the $32. Are you out of your mind? The rational buyer paid those pounds. Why? Because let's think about who could be bidding on that contract. Could it be a trader that has a downward bias towards the price and knows he's never going to get filled on that order? But if he drops in that low price, he doesn't have to worry about term price being reported higher when he knows or she knows that that utility is is wants to buy it from a producer and knows that that utility uh, has environmental social and government issues that they need to worry about and they know they want to buy it from a certain supplier the, the whole methodology is 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 crazy or it could Yet, just or you could just be hedging and you've literally worked out a you've got your model that says that this is where your hedge price should be and you you can sit there and go i'll probably never get that but i'm going to throw it into the market anyway because there'll be a perfect hedge for me so right right for all for all for all they know it, you know the things that are being signed is a fixed price which maybe the utility wants maybe they don't want market risk exposure maybe they don't want certain or they've topped up you know so much of their inventory from a certain country or region that they can no longer buy from there and they have to go somewhere else there's a lot of complexity to those deals that simply does not get captured by purely the number and, alone. And, and, and because of the non-disclosures in these contracts, the, the, the utilities don't want it disclosed. They don't want people knowing what they're doing. It's a competitive market, right? And, and so not, you can't, in almost all cases, there are some cases where you see it, but in, in what's happening now, uh, they can't come out and say it. So they need the price reporter to do that, and the price reporter doesn't report that. So when we look at term price, we're talking to fuel buyers, we're talking to people in the marketplace, we're talking to people throughout the ecosystem. We, we ignore the term price, but that's what the equities trade off of, right? From the bottom, the price of uranium is up 41%. From the Section 232 uh, going on two years now, um, and, and, and the Nuclear Fuel Working Group, and that's policy overhang that has caused buyers a lot of uncertainty. It's still up. I forget where it's up, teens or something like that. With all of that uncertainty, it's, it's, that's the spot price I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, the long-term price, it's not a reflection of where the market is. And what happens, you talk about these big moves up, because all of a sudden what happens, look, it's the old 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. In the world of fuel, in the world of nuclear power, it's in, in, in the purchasing thing, very smart people, but not focused. This is, they don't procure every day. They procure, you know, year, uh, maybe yearly or every bi-yearly. And so what happens is I'm reading a report that comes out that shows me, I'm not reading the 150-page quarterly updates. I'm reading, uh, because I don't care what I pay ultimately, it's, 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 uh, the, the whole front-end fuel cycle is 20% of my cost, and, and uranium is less than 10, so it doesn't matter to me. So I look at it, and I see the price. So oh, term price, it's still 32. It's still 30. Term price has been 32 for 18 months, despite the number one producer in the world, or the number one Western producer in the world, adding 25 million pounds to their order book in 2019, um, and telling you they got the prices they need, and the prices they need are uh, start with the uh, four-handle. Yet that doesn't get reported. So that fuel buyer... Term pricing sounds to, awfully like Chinese GDP numbers. You know what, Chris? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so now that, that fuel buyer who 
is at one or he has got one or two reactors out there. He's reading the headlines that come across the email in the inbox every week and the different report. There's one report, there's another report that comes out monthly. That's still 32. It's not moving. When you talk to them, not all, but most of them know that's that that's not the price that producers can stay in business at. They know that. So what happens is now, how do I get that price? If I'm a, if I got one or two reactors and I'm just in 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 a, in a small area, I've got to go to my chief uh, nuclear officer, my CFO of the company, my my uh, risk manager, my risk lawyer, and he's going to say, well, what what do you mean you you think the price is 50? And by the way, when it gets to 50, it goes a lot higher because they scramble, and so he they say, well, term pricing is showing at 32. Well, actually, in the last quarter, it, interestingly, in the last quarter. Term pricing, long-term forecast from one of the industry-leading uh, price reporters slash consultants took their price forecast up by uh, 16% long-term, 16% per year um, to, to over. So people stare at that term price, but that price deck went up significantly in their new update. And so you look at these things and say – that. That's the price even the market knows, because all these off-market conversations are taking place with fuel buyers who know that's not the right price. Some of them have more sway internally, and some of them are more forward and do their own modeling, not many. But for the average fuel buyer, it's tricky. So what happens is it then takes a life of its own. As more and more just start to, to do that, eventually the price reporter has no choice but to start reporting where these deals are getting done. And that's what happens. You know, in the last quarter, the price reporter that's also a forecaster slash consultant very quietly in at the end of November moved their estimate for a deficit to come from starting in 2026 down to 2022. That's a huge move. They took their demand numbers up 4% per annum for the forecast of 2020 to 2030. They took their price forecasting on spot. Spot was 16% a year move up long term. I, I misspoke before. It was 13% a year. And that deficit, which they, they have as 2022, is, is not right. Because if, if you go and look on slide up until 2026, you'll see that. It moved. And then when they, right, when they came out with their numbers in the fourth quarter, all of a sudden those surpluses, those little red bars, started in 2022. Now, uh, if you were so why doesn't a, that get adjusted in, just like the spot term uh, price doesn't? The opacity of the market. The, these, these, here, this, yeah. this, 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 this data comes from a forecasting service, an outlook provider, a price reporter, call them what consultant, call them what you want, that costs in the many tens of thousands of dollars per year to subscribe to. The, so the average, the average investor isn't seeing that. Sell-side analysts, with the exception of just a few, very small few, and there's only a handful that cover this. If they subscribe, they get one or two of the reports and, and cut and paste the models. And so it doesn't get picked up by the market. You know, in any other industry, any other commodity, any other, when, when things change, it gets ad adapted quickly into the marketplace. But here it's hidden behind a paywall. So you don't see that. We happen to be uh, uh, a subscriber. Go to page 31. Mike, you bring up something that's just on that point of data that's basically not perused by any volume of people for inspection. It's a, 
what happened that's what happens at the bottom of markets but, and, yes chris and especially when all because no, no one's looking at it so it doesn't no one's looking it, at it and, and 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 we spend 10 many tens of thousands of dollars to buy this data and and subscribe to it and get access to how the sausage is made and and that's that that gives us great comfort because the data is made with a recency bias the, yep. the, these these aren't guys who put capital and ladies who put capital to work and have to, and and are doing their very best to be right this is based upon no, it's, 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 what, it's the analogy is the rating agencies in in 0607 on um you know, triple uh, B rated mortgage-backed uh, securities. I, Chris, yes, I, we wrote. Uh, I wrote the quarterly letter. I forget, or three, four quarters ago. I wrote it up. The big short edge, AGE, because it's like the rating agencies. Everything was fine until it wasn't. And here, go to slide thirty-one. This will exemplify it. It just highlights it. It jumps off the page. Yeah, page thirty-one. It. If you're yep. a utility buyer in the first quarter of two thousand and eighteen. The forecaster, the consultant, is telling you that from 2019 to 2022, they're telling you there's a cumulative surplus of 91 million pounds in the first quarter of 18. Well, by the time you get to the fourth quarter of 19, they're that number is a deficit of 4 million pounds, a cumulative deficit, cumulative of those years. So here you are trying to plan based on two-year fuel, you know, two-year. 18 to 24 month purchasing cycle and you're sitting there in your desk in the first quarter of 18 and you're a fuel buyer and you're you've got the section 232 coming down the pike with all this uncertainty you're sitting on your hands which eventually wound up being 18 20 months but but you're looking and saying well what's the difference I got God there's 90 million pounds of surplus out there and then you get to the point where that stuff would be showing up at your gate if you had ordered it then but you didn't need to and now that same, now those numbers are telling you it's a, the next three years there's a deficit in a cumulative basis. Really? So think about that. But, but at the bottom of a cycle when few institutions are around, very uh, 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 institutional investors that are going to spend the money and take the time in an industry that they think is a falling knife, right? People don't like to catch falling knives. There was nothing better than catching a falling knife if you manage the risk well, because you're getting better prices. Um, the sell side, they're base metals analysts that pay zero, with the exception of a few, very small few, that pay zero attention to the uh, to the industry because they're covering everything else. You know, if you look through one of the recent reports from one of the big banks came out uh, with some commentary on uranium, the guy covers like 12 metals. Um, I'm, I'm making it up, but it was it was, it, and 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 we could tell from reading his his work on 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 uranium, it, it was it was absurd. And to, to, just to explain to to your listeners, Chris, how much we obviously pay attention to this market. When I see somebody's supply and demand model, I can tell within 30 seconds where all the actual information came from and where they're sourcing all their information. That's how many we've looked at. This is how many people we've talked to. We know where everybody's views are. So we know and you can see where, where that the quickly. Outlook. Right, where the outlook is coming from. And the outlook is very, very, is derived by, without sharing where our data comes from, just, just to take the high road here. <laughs> um, it, it's, 
that's the that's the for that slide 31. That's what these guys are dealing with, right? It's ridiculous. Now, if we go to these changes, and so we went from 2026 to 2022, right? Now, if if history is any 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 guide to the future, right? Which we can tell you from looking at years of this stuff, it is that in those numbers that make it 2022, slide 32 is really telling. Because that forecaster would have told you that when there was all this surplus in the blue line there, 30 million pounds, that inventory commercial drawdown, the draw still continued sucking down inventory, was going to be 9 million pounds in 2020, 2021, 7.5 million pounds in 2022. With all this surplus, they're going to suck down that amount of pounds. Go to slide 33. Now they're telling you we moved our deficit from 2026 to 2022, and guess what? The, the utilities who are only concerned about security of supply, in that prior chart I showed you, when prices were 90 and 100 bucks, were contracting at, at three, four times the levels they do today, that same fuel buyer is going to say, hey, Bob, you know what? Deficits here, but I'm going to keep sucking down inventories. I'm not worried about security of supply. They they took those numbers up by 65% for commercial drawdowns. It's illogical. It makes absolutely no sense. And there's no historical buying pattern that suggests that. And so what that means is had you not done that, the, and, and according to our number, we're already in a deficit. You're in a structural deficit. There is less uranium being supplied both primary and secondary, then is being consumed. And when you take that and you marry it to the chart I just sent you, which you'll put in somewhere, the underconsumption, which means inventory drawdown that's been occurring for the last half a decade, that's where you start to get, that's why you start to get these off-market discussions that are accelerating. That's why you start to see contracts that are being signed that aren't reported at that price. And that's why you wake up one day and all of a sudden it's Katie bar the door. Because from a supply-demand standpoint, Katie already let the door wide open. That horse has left the barn. And, you know, when you go back, I don't have a chart for you. We can put one together. Um, but if I was a fuel buyer in October, late October of 2005, and I'm looking out five years and I'm thinking about some planning, I would look and say, okay, well, what's the supply-demand look like? What's the, what's the forecaster telling me, the outlook provider? Well, they you would have seen that there was 70 million pounds of surplus. Why? Because you had a spate of new mines coming online, the biggest one being Cigar Lake up in the Athabasca Basin in Canada. And then I think the date was October 26th. I could be wrong by a few days. Then you came in one day, and Cigar Lake flooded before it came online. And if I was that same fuel buyer and I sat down a few days later and I'd say, geez, if I was doing my homework, there was 70 million pound surplus over the next five years. This mammoth mine that's coming online went offline. What does that mean? It's gonna come in in stages. What's that supply demand surplus look like five years forward? It was a 30 million pound surplus. Where'd the price of uranium go? Uh, from 30 something to 137 and you had a surplus. Today, you have a cumulative deficit during that time period. 
So what's happening? Well, you've had the trade policy overhang for two years, which is clearing itself up as we, you know, right now. And you've had inventory drawdowns, and you have forward-thinking utilities signing prices, signing contracts at prices that are way higher than term that the price reporter is saying, well, they're not rational. That same, that same, org, that same body that told you you had a, a 95 million pound surplus in the first quarter of 18 for 19, 2019 to 2022, that's now telling you it's actually a 4 million pound deficit. Who you want to, who, who, where you want to put your money, right? So it's those type of things that are just really quite stunning and, and, the, and I would say the the one thing that gets lost in the noise too, as we as it relates to the fuel cycle, you know, investors in this market are so focused on U three hundred eight and Yellowcake, they forget that conversion prices, which is just a service to get converted from U three hundred eight Yellowcake to UF six uranium hexafluoride, those prices are up over five x in two years, so you know, hundreds of well, percent. Well, Tim, explain why that happened and. You know, th there are prices for all of these, Chris. There's U308, there's conversion pricing, there's UF6, there's enrichment, it's called SWU pricing. And when you look back through history, they all move together. They may be six or nine months different sometimes, but the cycle moves together. Tim, why don't you talk about conversion and what we saw happen there? Yeah, two, two and a half years ago, uh, the, the narrative about conversion was the same uh, as it is about yellow cake, that there's tons of excess capacity for, for conversion, that you can get it whenever you want, that prices are low, and conversion is abundant. And finally, uh, Converdine, the, the plant in the U.S. in Metropolis, Illinois, said, you know what, this doesn't make sense anymore, and we are shutting down. At a similar time, the French are, are trying to get their new facility up and running in France. So they're, they've shut down their, their facility as well. So now you've gone from uh, a situation where conversion was extremely abundant to very tight very quickly. Why was that? Converdine smart. They said, you know what, we're going to shut down. They went into the market before they shut down and bought as much uh, conversion as they possibly could. And they do that by buying UF6. So UF6 is simply U308 plus conversion. That's kind of what, what, what it is, because that's literally how it is. You take U308, you convert it, and you have uranium hexafluoride. So you have the prices of all these components built into that. So Converdine went, bought a bunch of UF6 as much as they could because they knew they were shutting down. Plant went offline. And very, very quickly, what people thought were all these mobile inventories, as the price started ticking up, those mobile inventories started disappearing. And people said, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be selling any of this conversion into the market. Maybe we should be keeping it. And that's exactly what happened. So as prices went up more, more and more mobile inventories went away. And the same dynamic we will see with U308. People think there's all this mobile inventory. There's so much excess supply. Well, my first question is, if there's so much excess supply and the market's been relatively quiet for six months, you know, why haven't we broken down to 20 or 18 or $16 a pound and we're still stuck at 25? That'd be my first question. But secondly, as prices go, and I don't know whether it's tomorrow or three months or six months or nine months or 12, whatever it might be, you're, we're going to find out just how much mobile inventory is out there. And we are willing to bet that there's going to be a lot less because people who once said, yeah, let's sell this stuff back in the market and say, you know what, man, if prices are here, maybe they can go even further 
further north. So let's just hang on to it. And that creates a bad situation, as you alluded to, Chris, because there isn't much liquidity in this market, which will cause more and more volatility. I got a question on that. Sometimes in certain markets, and this is this has been um, the case in particular in energy markets in the past. Sometimes the pricing can move not as a consequence of supply and demand, but as but as a consequence of access to supply. And and where you're talking about something that is of a political sensitivity, that it can become much more prevalent. Um, and so. With respect to the enrichment of uranium, um, there is also, is, or the question is, is there any component here whereby the actual access to the finished product, if you will, could become, could, could come into question, irrespective of, of whether there's a, a supply deficit or, or even um, excess supply. So, because at the end of the day, the, the, uh, the utilities need the end product. Like they don't, you know, um, it doesn't really matter to some extent whether, whether they can get access from some mine. It's like they need the finished product and that they're not in the business of creating that finished product. Is there any, is there any potential for bottlenecks within that, um, within the refining, refining process? Sure. Well, I, we've seen some in conversion. Uh, it's not the end of the world because it, conversion is a, a small enough component in, of the overall price where um, it's not going to kill the utilities, even though we've seen that 5x uh, move up. But uh, certainly in EUP, right? So at the end of this year, we the United States will have to review the Russian suspension agreement. And what that says is, is cumulatively, U.S. utilities cannot import more than 20% of Russian EUP. Now, it's important for your listeners to understand that there are two enrichers in the world. There's one, a Western-based one, a European-based one called Urenco, where they have a couple of facilities in Europe as well as in New Mexico and the United States. And then there's Tenex, which is a Russian state-owned entity under Rosatom. And they basically have the market share of enrichment in terms of capacity about 50-50. However, there's obviously geopolitical issues going around in the world right now. Um, and at the end of this year, the U.S. is going to need to decide on the Russian suspension agreement. And, and currently, it's been in place for a number of years where, as I said, 20% EUP from Russia can come into the U.S. However, we don't know what's going to happen after that. Will the U.S. simply allow Russia to import as much uranium or EUP as, as they wish? Are they going to keep it at, at 20%? Are they going to move that percentage higher? Are they going to move that percentage lower? This is a big issue. This is a big, big issue. Because as you say, this isn't even relating to supply and demand in that sense. If, if there's a, a government change of policy, that could change the ability for U.S. utilities to access that EUP product. And that's the most important product, <laughs> the EUP. That's far more important than the uh, yellow cake product. Yep. Right. So, so we're going to have to see how this plays into. And there's obviously an election in the U.S. this year. So, again, it relates to that uncertainty of, of you know, how are they going to manage this risk and navigate, uh, you know, coming up over the next 6 to 12 months. Yeah, Craig, and there's, yeah, also geo, there's also diversity of supply. You know, when you look around the world, you look at what's being produced that's then going to state-owned utilities, 
uh, and um, you know what those are, you, you're probably looking at 90 to 100 million pounds uh, that's not committed to state-owned utilities from state-owned mining companies. And when you do that math, and then you say, okay, well, the Kazakhs, the Kazakhs are 64% of that. So if you if you're a Western if you're a Western utility, your 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 diversity of supply is de minimis, that's and very and, and that's a big issue. Yep. So it's a real issue. Because it's an issue where you have a component that is, um, you can't make the sausage without the sausage skin. And it, 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 so, it can't. Chris, uh, bingo. So, conversion is a service. Enrichment is a service. The, the the unit they sell in, separative work unit, is a service. Fabrication is a service. The, the product is yellow cake. That's the uranium. Without that, right? Sixty-five percent of all producers today do not make money, <clears throat> and they and yeah. they need. Price has got to get at 50, or that supply is not there. The difference between last cycle and this cycle, forget the fact that inventory levels are around the same, forget the fact that you've had all this under-contracting going on, um, you have no new mines coming online. None, not a Zippo. And uh, when you think about that, it, t it takes years and years and years to, to, to a mine, and you just had a forecaster tell you the deficit is, for, is now around the corner and based on what they were a year and a half ago, 18 months, 24 months ago on their forecasting, what's it going to look like in six months from now? We, we think we know what it's going to look like, and, 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 it, and it's, it's a lot worse than that. So, and, and again, you know, what, you'll hear people say, well, I've heard this story before. I've heard that you know, uranium is below the marginal cost of production. It's been that way since 2013, 2014. Well, utilities were destocking in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. So when they're not going to the grocery store very frequently, guess what? Yes, prices can fall below the marginal price of production. But when they start restocking, that price environment is going to be very, very different than it was during a destocking phase. Well, and as I just said, I'm accustomed to the fact that they don't need to stock up the shelves. Because yeah. nobody's coming in, and right. so, you know, so you know, why so, would you? So we've seen, yeah, absolutely. So we've seen producers destock. Cameco doesn't have much inventory anymore. Uh, the Kazakhs like to maintain, you know, six months of production inventories. That's really not that much. You know, you're talking fifteen, eighteen million pounds. You know, that's that's in the grand scheme of things, that's not very much. Um, enrichers have destocked. Throughout the cycle, so all so people wonder why. Wow, pr prices look terrible. We've seen now for seven, eight years nothing but inventories and destocking, and we're finally to a point where all that's been worked through the system after all these years into a period when no mines are being developed. Well, there's technically the Russians are developing a mine that will come on in 2023 for a couple million pounds. I think technically Finland just just said, but but this is these are these are nominal things. But that replaces one coming off. So right, right, exactly. I mean, we have other others rolling off. We, you know, so at the end of the day, we're going into a restocking cycle where the the ultimate feedstock of the industry has been kind of left for dead and, and people think, well, it'll just, it'll just kind of fall from the sky. But the reality is, is that that's not going to be the case. 
these, yeah, these supplies from above ground have been exhausted. And again, you can't de-emphasize the importance of the of, of the trade policy overhang. Fuel buyers didn't know in the U.S. where they were going to have to buy their uranium, and and because of the policy potent, uh, implications that could have could have occurred, and and that's a big deal. And so you said it before, Chris, earlier. Uncertainty. Eh, I'm not going to go buy that long-term contract. Uh, I'm not going to go buy that long-term bond. If it's uncertain, let me get something close. And you had the carry traders in there stepping up. But when you live, live in the fuel cycle like we do, you can see what's ta taking place. You know what's happening in, the, in these off-market discussions. Um, you know, so, yeah, they're, they're, it's, you know, start, it, it's there. Uh, it's just, again, people stare at a listed spot price every day, which is mostly traders – Physical traders trading back and forth 100,000 pounds of uranium here or there for 15, 25 cents a pound. And, and it's churn. It's, it's just trader churn. That's all. Who, traders who don't have a view on the market, they have no view. It's, it's let me make a little bit of money today and then tomorrow. The, the producers are also in buying because they oversell their order book and, and, and others have shut out of production. So they buy a little bit. And the utilities buy a drop. And that's kind of where you're, you're – so it's not a real market. It's just a churning – and it's a and spot, by the way. Spot is not – you know, normally a spot market is something you get in a couple of days' time. That's not how this spot market works. This spot market is a forward arbitrage market. It's a 12-month market, right? So it should be, as defined by spot, it should be in a can that you can finally that you can financially close on in a few in a few days. But that's not how this works. So you can have a spot market where somebody's looking for six or nine or twelve months forward delivery. Well, that gives a producer the time to adjust up or down. Try and go find even a half a million to a million pounds. Some uh, for delivery within 30 days. Good luck. And what what happens is with with inventories being worked down, with the cupboards run dry, if you need that, the mobility of the inventories that are out there is so low, you're you're going to be stuck. You know, Mike, we love when not if situations, and yep. they become more extreme where you have the market perceptions that kind of get built up and built up. And you know, I was one of them. The, the mugs who first started looking at the space and getting bullish on it. Um, and back in sort of 16 with the misunderstanding, well, actually 15 on this, with the misunderstanding of underfeeding, which is something that you brought to my attention and I'm eternally grateful for, but you know, that was fine. It was like, I guess I lost 1% of, of AUM, you know, we didn't lose it, but that was a position sizing to sort of have a, have a delve and have a look at the market to try and understand it a little bit better because it did, there was a number of things which made sense from my perspective where, Hey, this looks kind of, kind of interesting. It's, it's likely that the upside is greater than the downside. And so from a risk yep. reward perspective, let's not have a look at it, but I completely missed that massive mine supply, which is essentially was the underfeeding side of things. And so I guess yeah. like at that point in the cycle, what we had, and, and there was, there was a bunch of mates, um, gentlemen and that, you know, um, who were all, we were all on the, in, you know, looking at that as deep value buyers going, Hey, this looks kind of interesting. And we all got run over and 
in, in what, what happens now is like you've been hurt once, twice. And psychologically, it's hard to go back into the stuff. And that's yep. what happens. And so now we've got a market environment, which is just anybody that did look at it before was like, oh, you know, that just all I, I can remember it. And you know what? It just all I remember is bleeding. And so I'm not really that interested. This time around, what you have is just less participants. Again, that creates more volatility. It creates more asymmetry than you would otherwise have. Well, coupled with the fact yeah. that all those participants, guys like me, who would go and study this, haven't been studying it. They're like, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to go look at something else. Um, and yeah. so the, the, the mispricing or the ability for mispricing to take place becomes ever greater. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like when you look at, you know, you used to be a short seller, right? So yep. you have a lot of short sellers looking at something at some sector of market, the odds that you find the frauds in there become ever greater because you've got a whole lot of smart guys perusing the balance sheets, going through the financials, looking at what's wrong, looking at what, what, what's going on. When you've got less participants, those frauds can, can fly under the radar because no one's really looking at them. And so in the same light, what you got in the, from what I can tell in the uranium sector now, like, it's difficult for me to think of a more bullish environment just from the perspective that nobody's looking at this and no one's, everybody's given up on it um, at the same time that the... Well, the, and, and that's a great point, Chris, because there's been, there's a great quote in market, the people who know it the best hate it the most. And, and we're in a... So wrong. So it's like, right. even if you, if you were there, you kind of go back and you go, oh, let me have another look. You have another look and you're like, oh, it doesn't really look like it's moved from when, when I was last interested in it. Okay, I'll just go back to whatever it is I'm focused on, right? You think about the shorts that were in, in guys that were shorting. I, I know guys that were shorting. In fact, I know one gentleman, I won't mention his name. He had a fund and he was shorting the housing market. Oh, four, I think it was, he set up. Got about 30 million. Um, when, and his major play was shorting. He's like, this thing's a fucking disaster. Now, he just didn't position size particularly well. He, it's, you know, we've all fallen into this. In fact, I've fallen into it many times before. You see something, you think, oh my God, this is so obvious. Everyone else is going to figure this out. Let me get in. And you sit there and you wait and 12 months goes by and you wait and 24 months go by and you think, what the fuck is going on? Like, wake up, everybody. Anyway, and he fell into that boat and he really, as a consequence of the way that he traded, um, he had to keep rolling positions and he vaporized a decent amount of his capital from 04 through to oh, late 05, 06, early 07, he had to close his fund, right? Um, and we all know what happened in, in late 07, the whole thing imploded and he would have, his positions would have been flying, but they didn't because he didn't have the ability to, to manage that time frame, But I guess the point that I'm making is that you can get into these things, seeing the inevitable, and it can take a little bit longer than you anticipate, but when it does go, it really, really goes. And well, the more people chase it. People chase it. And not only that, like that particular gentleman actually got to the point where he started believing that he was wrong. So, and, and then he, and, you know, he, he closed the fund down. He's like, oh. I clearly, he was like, clearly I'm wrong. You know, I'm, I, it doesn't, I didn't think that none of this made sense, but, you know, 
Um, he started doubting himself. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what Julian Robertson did when he closed down Tiger Management right at the peak of the Internet bubble. One of the world's greatest investors of all time closed it down, right? A very deep value investor felt as though he lost step. And that wasn't, you know, it was just you get to that point sometimes. I mean, you know, our conviction, I mean, we, we it grows, it's, it's exponentially more today than it's ever been. Um, so, you well, know, and, I we, and I think what... I was just going to say quickly, Mike, you know, one thing that I just want to mention as well, because our conviction has grown, is you'll see people always fighting the last war in markets, right? That's, that's the trap a lot of people fall into, even professionals. And that last war for uranium is supply. You hear a lot of talk about supply and, you know, any mention of supply and it's like, ooh, no, that's bad. That's no good. You know, we believe this market has already shifted. That's a, the supply stuff has happened. Do I think supply is still at risk today if prices stay, you know, sub 30, 35? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a potential for more cuts potentially, but the main bulk of them ha have happened. And this market is now shifting to a demand driven market. This market is, is waiting for the utilities to come to the table. And that's happening now. And that's what gives us so much conviction today uh, relative to where every, everything else is. So keep going, Mike. No, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, you know, and I mean, Chris, that's, you know, everyone's different, right? It depends on what you're at. We, we live, we spend our time all day and night <laughs> um, looking at this fuel cycle, and that's where we come up with our conviction level, but we certainly understand others haven't, and, you know, depending on the, on the, on the investor, I'll tell you, the best thing people could do is just shut your Twitter off, right, because if, if uh, some nice people, um, I've, we've engaged with some nice ones, but what you see is, a data point that gets taken and run with uh, and will spend, you know, a, a 24, 48, 72 hours picket where people are going over a data point um, and trying to figure out what it means. But and it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, Chris, is that you need to, if you're going to enter this market, you need to uh, make sure that your horizon is congruent with the market. And if, if you're worried about stuff on a day-to-day -day basis and watching the price action on a day-to-day -day basis and you're, and you're talking about it with other people on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a pretty good chance your views on the market and everything else is incongruent. And that maybe it's time to kind of slow down a little bit. And also need to understand, too, Chris, that you're, you're investing in the mining industry is how people express mainly the view and many junior miners. And we see stories of people being down 40, 50 percent, uh, 60 percent. Uh, well, you, you got to know what you own, right? And you got to remember that you've got to risk control, you've got to use risk management. But the the leaps of faith that we see people take in the stories that are big that are told, and we we have a pretty good window because we see a lot of inbound and and a lot of stuff is directed our way. And we Tim and I never speak about a company and um and we're not going to to now <laughs> um but you know we see the stories I mean, you got to remember a lot of these companies are really promotional and and um very tiny when the momentum goes against them and then something comes out that surprises people and you know the stories shift three four times uh as to what's going to happen that you know that, yeah, that that's it's it's a tough tough space, the mining space. They're all fighting for capital, especially at the bottom, 
Um, so you got to be really careful on stuff like that. But you know, um, yeah. And and you know, t- t- Tim and I, if the way we look at it in 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 a nutshell, Chris is, we think the when when you talk, you and I talk about this offline all the time. It's asymmetrical risk reward. What does that mean? My upside is exponentially greater than my downside. If you're looking and you think you have 20 or 25 percent downside, but you think you have three, four, or 500 percent upside, that's asymmetry. And then you say, from a time perspective, how we view the world is okay. Uh, well, so if it takes a year or 18 months or 24 months or, or 30 months, and the when, not if, right? Um, what were you going to be doing with your money in that in the rest of the time? Going and competing in the S and P, uh, or or in some uh, uh, sector uh, uh, index where it's really difficult to generate any type of alpha, or go find something that's completely blown up, left for dead, and there are fundamentals that are changing, and that's asymmetry. And asymmetry, you know, you, 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 we see a lot of people who are all hat and no cattle. Right, all hat. I'm there because I'm going to get the returns of a lifetime. Well, that comes with a lot of volatility, and you better buckle in. And I get it. Sometimes Some people it comes have with, over the lifetime. I mean, you, yes. <laughs> literally, that yeah. time frame, yeah. that ability to yeah. to. You know, I mean, it's, I could give you a story. I mean, some of the, the things that have worked for me, the reason that I'm sitting where I am today, literally can be boiled down to two things. One, identifying, you know, that asymmetry. And the second one, doing fuck all. Sitting there and just having the ability to to ride through. Ride through. I mean, you, you guys know it. You look at some of these equities because that's the only way to play it. Um and you know what the market is. You know what the fundamentals behind it are. And you'll wake up in the morning and you'll see something that's down 20%, right? And so the, 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 the difference is, or the main component behind that is if a typical investor will, will go and they'll see something down 20% and they go, I'm wrong. And they let the, mar- yep. they let the price tell them the, they let the price be arbiter of their decision making and you will never ever find asymmetry if that's how you're gonna nope. um, but where, where people Chris you know people will often say price doesn't lie bullshit price lies all the time it doesn't lie maybe right it doesn't lie maybe in Google where there's 80,000 people looking at it and they all have the same information when there's few eyeballs on something and it's something as big and complicated and opaque, price price freaking lies, bro. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> as kind of a correlate to that, I kind of want to bring this up. It's not uranium specific, but, you know, my background is in, you know, physical commodity trading where there's, there is no prices, there is no screen. You have to like get on the phone and call people and email people and yada, yada. You know, there's a reason why brokerage firms put really colorful blinking lights on trading platforms. Do you know why? It's just like a casino. It's to lure people to buy and sell stuff because that's what, that's how brokerages make money, right? Not a shock, but literally turn your screens off. If you want to be an asymmetric investor, if you want to live and die by the Howard Marks views of the world, turn your screens off. 
They're not going to help you do anything. And being glued to your screen, they're just going to lure you into making decisions when you probably should be going the exact opposite way. It's just human nature. So that's my comment on that. Chris, there are days I couldn't tell you the price of uranium stocks. We have a trader. If something's going on that's a little wacky, he'll let us know. But I, we don't look. I, some, you know, maybe at the end of the day, what they do, or maybe not, because we're we're talking to people in the industry trying to figure out supply, demand, secondary supply, primary supply, reactor starts, relicenses, uh, mine economics. That's where our time is better spent. Not not staring at a screen and going. Every tick down, the price is telling me I'm right or wrong. I mean, it's it's just it's not the way it, it goes. And um, yeah. I and maybe another to- another piece of advice to to investors out there or people who are listening is a lot of the questions that we get from people, you know, inbound, are all available on public filings. The Japanese utilities are all public. You can look up their inventories. They list them right on the balance sheet, right there. Go look them up. U.S. utilities. Inventories, EIA, go look them up. EU, you're at them. Right there. Go make a list of every single company in the nuclear fuel cycle that's public. You can find information. Get off Twitter, get off social media platforms, and take the time to go read to go to go read annuals, go read quarterlies. They are jam packed with information. Got it wrong, mate. No one wants to do the work. <laughs> I, I enjoy the work. We enjoy the work. Like that that's where you have serious light bulb moments in market well, is when you're looking and no one else is. That's where you sit there and you go, Oh my god, I found a gold mine and nobody else has found it. It's sitting here in front of you. There's something that you'll see come out um in the weekly I'm about to publish. <laughs> it's a separate sector we've talked about um about shipping before. But like there's a company you'll see 33%, basically, they're just the numbers coming out based on um, their uh, Q4 results work out that they've got a 33% divvy. Hmm. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with this company. Amazing. It's, like, it's, um, it's, it was actually brought to my attention by one of my subscribers. Um, but the point is, like, you look at this stuff, and then you show me how many people are looking at the shipping sector. Hmm, none. Like the ad, there's no analyst left, and it's the same thing with the uranium sector. And so, you know, when you find this stuff, you and you you dig through the numbers and you do the hard work that you guys have done. Um, it, you have you kind of have to do that to get the conviction in order to be able to sustain the volatility and the noise. And there's only a couple of ways you can do that. You guys have got it because you could. I, I know you could sit and stare at your Twitter feed and you could stare at your Bloomberg's or your Reuters, whatever you're using. Um, and it wouldn't really phase you because you've got the underlying um, uh, knowledge, right? For your average person, they're often relying on information from someone like yourself or, or other parties that have put it together. And that's never the same thing. It's like when you've built it, you have the conviction, you know, you, you built right. a house, you know whether it's going to fall down or not. But when you yeah, and, I, and I hope you and I and I hope your listeners are, are taking this conversation and, and writing notes down and using this as a jump off point to go explore different things in the market to say, you know, I never thought about X. Let me go look that up. Let me go look up your Ranko. Oh, they have annual reports and enricher. Let me go see what they have to say in there. That's what they should be taking away from this podcast. 
hundred yeah, percent. I mean, not not what we like or don't like, or and and we could always be wrong, right? <laughs> you make your own decisions on that stuff. Um, I, I had a I had a Super Bowl party. This you know, just some neighbors came over for the Super Bowl, and uh, people said to me, you know, of course because they know I'm a hedge fund guy. What 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 do you uh, what do you think of the market? I get that question 17 times a day if I'm out and around town. Um, um, the uranium market, because I, I don't even pay attention to the other market. You know, I look at commodity prices. I look at interest rates. I look at other stuff. But I, we just have no interest in participating in the same market other people are playing in. It's, so it's like we and, – and it really is. It's like doing a research project and with just turn the screens off, you know, and, and don't and, – and I get it. People have full-time jobs, and that's their thing. I totally get it. And and while it's a well, a very well-meaning platform on Twitter, um, and I, we've met some very very nice people, um, we see how one little thing runs and runs and runs and runs, and people get all worked up. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the uranium stocks were trading off hard, and people were trying to figure out what it was because the, the ETF was rebalancing. It was buying Kazataprom, the biggest uranium company, and it's selling off. Well. That's a buy for us. That was we, we were buying hand over fist. I mean, we we're putting, I mean, a huge amount of money to work. Uh, not not saying, oh my God, here it is again. Why? Because we it doesn't you it doesn't change what's taking place. You you understand it doesn't change our outlook of supply and demand. And, and not only that, the seller, the ETF, literally knows nothing about uranium. They're just a forced seller. They're rebalancing. They're blowing out of stock. They couldn't care less, could not care and, less. And there, and there are quant funds that play these games, right? So a quant fund sees a change in an ETF or they see volumes going in stocks that are trading four or five, six times their normal volume, and they add to the pressure and they short it. And so those are, those are temporary technical games that, that get played. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very interesting – and it doesn't have to be uranium. It's any market that is just blown up and left for dead. You, that's that's where you find your interesting opportunities potentially, right? Many many industries that are or companies that are trading on their asses are are there for a reason. Um, so totally. Well, gents, it has been as always an absolute pleasure. So Same thanks here, a lot for, for, for dialing thanks, in. Thanks Could for playing. Thanks for playing. Thanks for playing injured, man. Didn't realize you're fighting the flu bug. <laughs> I'm gonna go out and dig myself a hole. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks, Chris. It's been a great chat, and uh, obviously, this is what we do every day, and this is what we uh, eat, sleep, and breathe. Uh, literally, have dreams about the uranium market probably two or three times a week. You think I'm joking, but uh, I'm not. But this is what we do all day, so it, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Likewise. Until right, next Max. time. Take Talk care, to you James. Soon, buddy. All, All right, right thanks, Chris. All right, All right, bye. So that's it for today. I hope that you enjoyed that discussion. I know I did, and I will intend to bring some more of these discussions to you in the future. So make sure that you subscribe to Capitalist Exploits if you have not done so, and I look forward to doing more of these. Thank you very much.